Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Jonah chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, just a, a moment of confession. I um, sat in my study working through this particular passage, and in working through it, I was um, something that rarely happens, I think. I would like to skip this section. And the reason I'd like to skip this section is because, my goodness, if it is not extraordinarily dark, I mean, it is almost as though we find in this moment that all light has been yanked away, that there is not a glimmer of hope. And yet what we find amidst this passage, as at the end we see the the break of dawn, the brightest moment in the human experience, but it is only found amidst being at the bottom of the ocean where no light could dare penetrate. And this morning it is my task to take us there. And so I would request, I would ask that you walk with me patiently through this. Because essentially the task is to walk us through the valley of the shadow of death and trust that by God's grace, he can bind us up after we have been wounded by the realities that we find ourselves in. Because we live through this life always expecting it to come to a close, always expecting there to be a moment of sobering reality that we do not give breath to our own nostrils. And this morning, what we must do is take that in, embrace it, and understand it in such a way that we find ourselves running only to the one who possesses salvation in totality. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we'll make our way through verse 10. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Jonah chapter 2 says this, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, that the, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning proclaiming this one great truth. Salvation belongs to you. It does not belong to any other. It is not something that we possess or even have a stake or claim in. It belongs to you 100%. It is all yours. So, Father, we come this morning 
rejoicing in that. For Lord, if it belonged to any other, salvation would never come. If it belonged to any other, we would have no hope at all. But we know that it belongs to the one who loves, who has grace and mercy that abounds. And so Father, I ask you this morning, would you help us to see the state in which we were in when your love came to us, when your salvation arrived? It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The start of this, we need to do a brief recap, not, not too long, but uh, last week we examined this concept of Jonah being tossed into the sea. And as he was tossed into the sea, I'm convinced that what you find here is Jonah sinking to, the, sinking to the bottom of the ocean with no hope of life whatsoever, drawing his last breath. And as he draws his last breath, he is swallowed up into the underworld, into Sheol. Now, what Jonah is doing amidst this, and I'm convinced that this prayer essentially takes place just moments before Jonah is spit out of, or as colorfully as the scripture says, vomited out of the mouth of the fish. It is in this moment where Jonah awakens, and as he awakens, he is immediately considering the ways that God has worked amidst this very difficult and trying time, dare I say, literally his death. And in this moment, you see him make this last claim. And we will arrive here toward the end of the message, but it is important we understand everything that he has endured and the backdrop on which he says and proclaims salvation belongs to the Lord. And so this morning, it's important for us to see the various forms of death that we endure. And as a matter of fact, as you approach this prayer, I would almost consider it a psalm at this point. That as you approach this prayer, it is almost as though Jonah is building out his own suffering. And in his building out of his own suffering, he considers the various ways, I would argue three ways that he has died. And the first we see rather clearly, if you'd notice the text, I mean, it says quite clearly, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. And then notice verse three, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And again, in verse five, he considers this moment of his physical suffering that ultimately leads to him drawing his last breath. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were, t- weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. You see, in this moment, as we look at this particular passage, what we see is a man suffering. What we see is not only a man suffering, but it's almost as though he is in his own language pointing out the true horror of what he has endured. As a matter of fact, even in the Psalms, anytime someone is, or many times when someone is considering the true sufferings of death, they think in particularly about being at the bottom of the ocean where hope is gone altogether. There's no means of them to make it to the top that they might draw their breath and, and live. They know it to be a violent and painful thing. And friends, what you notice about this is Jonah does not beautify it. There's no aim in Jonah as he considers his own suffering unto death to make it lovely. I mean, think about everything that he describes. The very entry of this psalm is pointing to the fact that he has indeed succumbed to the waves and these waves have thrown him to and fro. You can imagine even Jonah being tossed into this tumultuous sea, fighting and fighting deeply and passionately that he might be able to stay just on the surface. And yet what occurs? The waves come. The waves indeed toss him to and fro until there is no strength left in him to keep himself above water. And he sinks. And you can imagine the weight of this moment for him. And may I simply say that the weight of this moment will likely come to each of us. There will be a moment where we will not be able to, out of all the strength of our body that we think is so mighty, 
even to draw a breath. There's nothing in us that wills our heart to beat. It is simply by God's grace that he gives every breath and every beat of the heart. And there will be a moment where it will cease. And here Jonah ponders that. Here Jonah realizes that he has been beaten by the waves and he is ultimately sunk to the bottom of the ocean. His arms will not give him strength to swim to the top and he will lay there. And ultimately he will draw his last breath and he will indeed die. And we think about this and we know these things to be a reality and yet we live as if they are not. We live as if we really can in all the strength of our might keep ourselves alive. And in that, we make the most heinous of decisions. We believe that in the midst of all of these things, that really the end of this psalm should not be salvation belongs to the Lord, but it is in me to keep myself alive. That it is in my own might, it is in my own righteousness, it is my own deeds that I can make myself right before God, that I can live unto him. Friends, can I say with great certainty, just as Jonah died physically, we need to remember that there is nothing in us that will keep ourselves alive unto God. There is no might in us to do that. That as Jonah could not reach the top to breathe, so too should we have to provide our own righteousness. We would never be able to draw a breath that came from the favor of God based upon our works. But it is not only in his physical death that we see, but we see also amidst this physical death, despair. And I mean, deep despair. Even as he introduces this psalm, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And then it goes on to say to, I am convinced, the the harshest words that could ever be uttered concerning our state. He says, I am driven away from your sight. He considers not only his physical death, he considers this idea, this concept of deep despair amidst it. We have forgotten the despair of death. We think it so far. We think it almost rare, I am convinced, that it will come, but it certainly will not come to me. Brothers and sisters, you can rest comfortably knowing that there will be a day where you will draw your last breath, lest the Lord come first. It will indeed come. Your strength will indeed fail. And even then, you will find yourself likely in deep despair amidst that moment. It is not unreasonable or even unrational to sit there in that moment and ponder your own mortality. And so Jonah, amidst this, is doing just that. Can you imagine the thoughts that ran through his brain as he drew his breath of water, filling his lungs, knowing that no oxygen, in his mind at least at bare minimum, would ever enter back in? It's reasonable for there to be despair. And friends, I can say even amidst this, when you consider Jonah's immediate state as he was plunged into this water, I would argue that there could be nothing but despair for there can be no confidence if there be no obedience. He has rebelled, he has run, he has desired to flee from the presence of the Lord altogether. Is it any surprise that as he lays at the bottom of the ocean, drawing in that deep breath of just water that he thinks, not only am I dead, but I will be cast away from the presence of the Lord. I will never experience his loving kindness again. It is no surprise. I would even go to the extent of saying that is the death of every natural man. Every natural man, when he is on his deathbed, there is no hope because there is no Christ if he has not repented and trusted him. And as he despairs of death, he begins to go a bit deeper. 
Because in this text, it is not only that we see him consider his own suffering of physical death, we actually see him go all the deeper and he makes reference to being caught up in the finality of death. Ultimately, in the introduction, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. He then later on in verse six says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He knew with great certainty and he knew rightly with great certainty that should he die for every, every other circumstance, save quite just a few, just a handful, that that moment of last breath is indeed the end. It is final. It is the finality of life. And he considers this. And I think that even amidst considering this, we all know this to be a reality. We all know that whatever it is that awaits us on the other side, whether we be in Christ or not, it is indeed a final, final verdict. And he ponders this. But what's most horrendous about this is he gets, I'm convinced, a just atrocious taste of what he has been seeking since Jonah chapter 1 verse 1. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. I'll just confess to you as I'm reading this, I almost laugh at this phrase. Primarily because this is what Jonah has wanted since the beginning of the story. At the very beginning of the story, what is it that Jonah longs to flee from? He longs to flee particularly from the presence of the Lord. He says, I want nothing to do with your presence. And almost as a man who is longing for water, but stranded in the ocean, he takes a cup of salt water and discovers that he is all the more thirsty. He realizes that it will not satisfy, that there will be no satisfaction apart from, apart from Christ and Christ alone. He drinks deeply of that despair. He drinks deeply of that separation and realizes that it is altogether horrid. It is a nightmare that knows no end. And this is the state of every natural man. Hear me if you do not know the Lord this morning. This is your state. Do not be mistaken. Let no one lie to you. That if you have not looked unto Jesus as Savior and Lord, I can say with great confidence that the day that you draw your last breath, you will wake up in his absence. You will wake up free from his loving kindness and you will have only his wrath to rest upon you eternally. The bottom of the ocean would be a blessed place in comparison. And this is the state of every natural man. Brothers and sisters, we do well to remember that this would have been our state apart from the grace of God that is only in Christ. And the reason we must lay this burdensome backdrop is because you will never taste and savor the grace of God in Christ lest you know what he suffered for you, lest you know what he drank deeply of. And so what is it that would comfort Jonah amidst this? Because genuinely, as I consider this picture of this psalm, it is the idea of Jonah looking up at the top of the sea as he is drowning in the bottom. And perhaps it is that there are small beams of light that would pierce the darkness. And he considers them amidst this. You even see a couple of statements that seem incredibly hopeful. Let's just consider a couple. The very first thing that we can have great hope in for the saint, for those who actually do know the Lord, is that there is no absence of his presence at any given moment including the deepest possible pain, including that last breath that we breathe in the body. I want you to notice the language that you have just in verse one. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. 
Who else could have found Jonah? Who else could have heard his voice from the great fish? It is only the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who is able to not only find Jonah, but to hear out, hear him, hear his prayers. And even amidst there's this gleam, this beam of glory, he hears me. That even when I think that I can't even hear my own thoughts, the God of glory hears me. He is present. He is not absent at all. But even then we see in this particular psalm that same verse that is so weighty and horrid of verse 4. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. That this is, this is in essence the state of hell. I'm driven away from your sight. And yet even amidst this proclamation, even as he considers these realities, he says this. And it is so interesting, the confidence that is amidst this prayer. Because friends, if I consider that I am driven from the sight of the Lord, I do not even think for a moment that he hears me. Does he hear me? Does he respond to me? Does he give me an audience? And Jonah says this on the latter half of this verse. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Isn't that intriguing that even amidst this deep and dark moment, he still has these promises that he's clinging to. And friends, it seems like as you watch the descent of Jonah, he actually begins to come up in this prayer. He has descended and descended and descended. And then there are these gleams of awakening within him. Well, perhaps there is a bit of life left in him. Perhaps there is a bit of love for his creator, for the God who he says that he prophesies for, for the God that he says he loves and that he, that he is obedient unto, though we have seen nothing but disobedience since the beginning of this story. And yet he says, not only does he hear my prayers, but he embraces that there is indeed promise of life amidst death. And then there's this sweet phrase that we find at the end. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. We gloss over that and we think and we think the entire embodiment of this particular section is don't sacrifice to idols, sacrifice to the living God. And though that certainly be the case, what is true, what we find to be the most comforting is that even amidst death, friends, if you be in Christ, your worship will not cease. If you find all of your hope and all of your stay and all of your joy in what you have here, I can say with certainty it will be ripped from you. But if your delight, if your rejoicing, if your glory is to worship the living God, the Holy One of Israel, the one who has bought you with his blood, then brothers and sisters, we can pray this psalm even amidst our last breath because we know that when I draw my last breath here, I will breathe my first with him. And that as I breathe my first with him, I will do what I have always done, which is exhale praise and worship. Friends, if the great delight and desire of your soul is to worship the living God, then eternity will be most sweet to you. For that is all that it will be. And even amidst this, he thinks, what I vow, I will pay. He understands that there will be a voice of thanksgiving that will erupt from him. So it is with every saint, whether they experience this miraculous moment of a physical resurrection in this time or not. And friends, he has promised none of that to us. He has promised us life and life eternal. Most certainly, as we draw our last breath here, we know that we will be with him. And we even look forward to a future bodily resurrection. But he does not promise a physical one here and now. Nor do I think, should he, would we want it. 
And so we have these gleams of hope amidst this deep dusk of despair. And the last one is rather simple, I think. I mean, the the true hope of this prayer is genuinely at verse 10. The conclusion of the prayer seems to be exactly when the Lord spits Jonah out of the fish's mouth. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. And you would think that this would be the pinnacle. You would think this would be the, the crescendo of all that we have seen unfold thus far. Jonah lived. God saved Jonah. He kept him, and he brought him back to the dry land. He vomited him out on the dry land. And you would think that this would be the crescendo. Jonah is physically alive. He lives. This is not the crescendo. As a matter of fact, this is simply a repercussion of what the crescendo actually is. All of these applications that we can consider from this particular prayer are incredible. They're blessings. They're they're, they're a way to comfort us amidst the darkest moments of life. But they are not the crescendo of the story. I mean, yes, praise be to God that in our suffering, He is present. Yes, praise be to God that should we draw our last breath here, we will exhale praise with Him eternally. Yes, rejoice in that. But the only reason you have any of these things, they are simply beams of light that radiate off the sun that is God's salvation. Notice this last phrase. This is what God has been trying to communicate to Jonah since Jonah 1.1. He says this. This is the conclusion of Jonah's prayer. This is the crescendo, I would even say, of the entire book of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is His. He owns it. Everything that it is was birthed in his mind. When we consider this reality, we need not dare consider any of these blessings first until we understand that the salvation that God provides belongs to him and to him alone. It cannot be mustered by anything that we do. And it certainly cannot be found in anyone else. Notice even in verse, in verse 10, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Indeed, they do. For salvation belongs to the Lord. You will not find it anywhere else. You can search all you want to, and you might even think, I can labor, I can fight, I can muster this up. There will be a day when the breath of your nostrils will be snatched from you. And all your strivings will cease. And the only hope that you can have is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Now we do need to ask the question, what does it mean? When we consider this particular verse, this language, because friends, this language doesn't stop here. It continues throughout the entirety of scripture, the concept, the idea that salvation is his. What then does that mean? How can we think about it rightly? Well, first, it means that salvation originated in his mind. He is the author of it. And friends, can I just say that the greatest confidence that is in the Christian life is knowing that it originated in his mind, but friends, that you were a part of its origination, meaning that you were included in his plan of redemption. Not a blob, but a person. He knows those who he has rescued. And he has, as he authored salvation, included the saints of God, his church, who he bought with his blood. When we say that salvation belongs to him, it means that we are rejoicing that it has originated in his mind. And if it has originated in his mind, then we can know with great certainty that it is perfect like him. It is sure and steadfast like him. It is full of grace and mercy for he is full of grace and mercy. He is the originator, but it is also his to accomplish. 
When we consider the salvation of the Lord, I am for some reason, we think to ourselves, God has structured, God has created, he has, he, has, he has instituted this glorious means of rescue, and we think, what can I add to it? Repent. For your view of God is too low. There's no contributions to make. What he made, he made perfectly. Salvation belongs to him. It was his to accomplish. And friends, we can say on the other side of the New Testament that it was his and it has been accomplished. For we will see here in a moment that the sign of Jonah, Christ perfectly executed. It was his to accomplish. And friends, what he promised he, he, he would accomplish, he accomplished with, with perfection. But we must also say, even amidst this particular book of Jonah, it is his to give. It is his to give. Saints, how is it that you find yourself breathing, that you have real and genuine spiritual life in Christ? Did you see him and find him lovely in and of yourself? Even as we read, as we began this service, John 3, we know that the flesh only gives birth to flesh. It is by the Spirit of God that you see him and find him beautiful and lovely. And that in him giving you eyes to see, it is no surprise that you run to him, for he has given you eyes to behold him in all of his beauty. And so it is his to give. And friends, the beauty of this is if it were by anyone else's design of who it would come to, it would not come to any, for we would not think anyone worthy of it. Even as Jonah looked at the Ninevites and said, not to them, wicked altogether. You look at people who you love, who you know, and you consider their state, you consider they're far too wicked for God to rescue them. Friends, you do well to take a moment of examination. If it is able to save you, it is able to save any soul. And so it is his to give. But it is also his to bring to completion. And this is where we must have great confidence. For what he starts, he will indeed finish. Saint, if you be in Christ, we do not wrestle in a fearful way to lay hold, to keep our salvation. Instead, we labor rejoicing, singing as we are obedient unto Christ because he has given us a salvation that has been completed and that will remain steadfast throughout the entirety of our life. We do not have a gospel that is so frail that it might let you go amidst minor trespasses. We do not have a gospel so weak that even amidst your own desire to flee that he will let you go. Even consider the person of Jonah. This man did everything he could to flee from the presence of the Lord, but by God's grace, and in particularly by his jealousy, he will not let those whom he has purchased go. Not only is it to his to bring to, com to completion, but it is lastly designed for his own glory. I'm convinced that we say we believe this, but perhaps it is that it is often a bit unpalatable to us. You know, you wonder why it is that we often long to contribute something, and I'm convinced that it's rather simple. We long to not have the solo before the Deo Gloria. We long to say, yes, glory to God and a bit to me, because we think that the salvation that he's provided, perhaps it isn't perfect. Perhaps it isn't just belong to him. Perhaps he owns 99% of the shares and I must have just one or two that I might participate in this blessed means of redemption. It is not so. And the man who thinks that does not understand the salvation that God has provided for him. Nor will he live rightly before him for he will always be given to legalism and self-righteousness, which is an eternal offense before the holy God. 
When we say salvation belongs to the Lord, we are saying from start to end, from the first breath we breathe in the faith to the last one that we draw here on throughout eternity, salvation belongs to our God. It is His and His alone. But then we have to press forward in this because in verse 10, we do see this moment, this glorious moment. And the reason we don't think it glorious is because I think we rob the weight of this story by saying that Jonah was indeed alive this entire time. Jonah is dead. How is it that he comes to life? He comes to life because salvation belongs to the Lord. He gives it as he wills. And as Jonah is dead in that fish, God in his grace allows him to breathe again. And not only does he allow him to breathe again, he has preserved his flesh for his intended end. And even as we look forward into passages like Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus said, I will give you one sign and one sign only. I will give you the sign of Jonah. Brothers and sisters, the sign of Jonah is not that he was three days in the fish. The sign of of Jonah that Jesus is fulfilling is not that he was just three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah is that Jesus is alive. The sign of Jonah, the one that Jesus perfectly fulfilled, is a purchased resurrection that he accomplished in absolute beauty and splendor that for some reason I find myself a participant in. That's the sign of Jonah. The reason we say salvation belongs to our God is not because Jonah was spit out by a fish. It's because Jesus trampled death underfoot. It's because sin is conquered. It is done away with. This is our only hope. You're here and you think, listen to the folly that's coming from this man's mouth. You think he preaches this concept of salvation, but there certainly is none. Senator, I'll tell you, search. Look for salvation elsewhere. You will find none. You will find no hope that you will be eaten up by death. And you will not only be eaten up by death physically, you will draw your last breath and you will find yourself in a place of everlasting torment that Jesus, by his grace, says that if you run to him, he has absorbed it for you. And so what then, how then do we respond? I mean, you read this story and you think salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, Revelation actually gives us the answer to the how we respond. It's interesting. You find in Revelation 19, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power to our God. They belong to him. But as Blake read earlier, I'm convinced that the song of every saint should be ever constantly this. In crying out with a loud voice, they shouted, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Yes, salvation belongs to our God. We see it most clearly in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord when he bought it for us. And that by his grace, we can say with confidence that I am a glad participant in not only his death, but his, but his, his resurrection as well. Only if we come to him. Only if we flee to him and run to him in faith. And there we will indeed find a perfect savior who has trampled death underfoot that all of the horrid concepts that we read in the introduction, sinking to the bottom of ocean, being swallowed up by death, it's already happened. It's already happened for the saint. Yes, we will taste it physically, but that is all. Because all other concepts of death, separation, suffering, anguish apart from God, has been absorbed in the perfect, better prophet who is Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning rejoicing that salvation belongs to our God.
I can think of no other reason to sing. That I have nothing to add, I have nothing to contribute. Lord, I am, as Jonah was, dead at the bottom of the ocean. It is only by your grace that you have sent a means of redemption. And so, Father, may it be that we are ever constantly singing that great song, that salvation belongs to our God and the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain in our stead, the one who did, who was buried. He sat in the earth three days and three nights, ultimately to show the true sign of Jonah is that death is conquered underfoot. It has no sting. It has no bite. It has no power at all for those who have trusted Christ. It is weak. So, Father, may we, in light of that, see you strong the one who is mighty to save, the one who has conquered all his enemies. And Lord, we look forward to the great day when we will watch every enemy placed underneath your feet. It's the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray, amen.